0: You know, I once heard this compared to dating, and I think that's actually right. The first step for us would be getting a referral from one of our kind of trusted partners, and that's a bit like being set up by a friend.
1: Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth.
2: Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, the producer and host of the show, and I'm super excited to share this episode with you, which was a live recording with a live studio audience at the Institute of Fundraising's 2019 convention at the Barbican in London. For those of you who don't know, this is the largest fundraising convention in Europe, and we were so excited to be a part of it. It was an incredibly exciting day, and the room was buzzing. So thank you so much to everyone who came out, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone. We are so thrilled to be here at the 2019 IOF Convention. We're in this beautiful cinema in the Barbican and we're really excited about today's guest. So I'm going to turn it over to Emily to do the introduction.
3: Hi everyone, really thrilled to be here and to introduce today's wonderful guest. So Sonal Sachdev Patel is the CEO of GMSP Foundation, which is a family foundation established by entrepreneurs Ramesh and Pratibha Sachdev, which supports strong frontline organizations working to improve the lives of some of the most vulnerable people in India and in the UK. After graduating from Cambridge with an MA in economics and management studies, Sonal started her career as a strategy consultant at Bain & Company, specializing in private equity due diligence. Currently, beyond her role at GMSP Foundation, she is head of global partnerships at award-winning Think Equal, which works across 12 countries to bring systems change in in education and is a strategic advisor to the British Asian Trust. Sonal co-authored Gita, The Battle of the Worlds, published by HarperCollins, which brings the universal messages of the ancient Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, to children of all faiths and none. And Sonal was recently awarded the Influencer Award by DSE Awards for her work in social change. At IG, we've had the enormous privilege of working with Sonal on her philanthropic strategy and particularly partnering on the design and implementation of a campaign called Rise Together, which aims to drive investment and awareness to BME women-led organizations in the UK. Welcome to What Donors Want, Sonal.
2: Thanks. All right, so (laughs) for those of you who have listened to the podcast, you'll know how we always begin it. And that is with what we call the speed round of questions. It's completely unrelated to fundraising or <laughs> philanthropy. Um, and the whole idea behind it is, yes, to start off on a kind of a playful, human-centered note, but also to promote the idea that donors, program officers, philanthropists are all just people with preferences and you know, kind of tastes and quirks just like us. And, and it's a really important kind of foundation to, to think about and build on when, when building partnerships together. So full disclosure, Sonal has not seen these questions. Um, so this is very brave thing Um, and we're just gonna do a speed round of uh, we've got nine questions for you and you can just say the first thing that comes to your mind and then I promise we will dive into the goods and the actual philanthropy speak in just a sec. Are you ready? Yep. Okay (laughs) so Sonal if you could have any superpower what would it be?
0: Hmm. Time travel. What was the last show you binged? Handmaid's Tale. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm waiting every week for (laughs) the next episode. (laughs) I spent
2: last night watching
0: it and I was very distressed. Um, What was the last book that you read? Oh, uh, Yet Another Interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita and The Magic Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton with my daughter.
3: (laughs) What is your favourite genre of music? R&B. What is your favourite guilty pleasure movie?
0: (laughs) Oh, difficult one. The Goonies. (laughs) What is your next dream travel destination? Vietnam, I'm going there in October, can't wait. Oh, it's amazing. If the world was going
2: to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be?
0: A pack of salt and vinegar crisps.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Filling, I like it. Um, this is a really important question for IG advisors coffee or tea? Coffee. I'm going to ask the audience to participate on this one. Hands up for coffee, hands up for tea. Oh, that's pretty evenly yeah, pretty split. Even. Just like the IG team.
0: It's true,
2: it's, it's very <laughs> contentious. <laughs> and the final question, which uh, is also uh, a big one. So Beyonce or Gaga?
0: Oh, definitely Beyonce.
2: I mean, of course. <laughs> OK, I'm going to throw that to the audience as well. Hands up for Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Hands up for Lady Gaga. There were some. All right. So, you know, we thought that would be a completely obvious choice for Beyonce, but Lady Gaga's fabulous too. So I, I have a lot of respect for both of them. <laughs> all right. That is it. You have survived the speed round. Thank so God. Thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you for indulging us in that. Um, all right. So section two is obviously why we're all here. But to start us off, Sonal, can you tell us about how you came to be involved in the world of philanthropy and your foundation work?
0: Yes, so um, it actually all started over a bowl of bubbling khichri. i just returned from India, from living and working there, and we were sitting around the table eating khichri, which is this traditional Gujarati meal. I'm looking to see if anyone here is going to know what that is. It's like a mix of rice and lentils that you get brought up on, and it's been on our family table every single Sunday night since I could eat food, <laughs> and it still is. Um, and my family were sitting there, and there were these two parallel conversations going on One was always typically on business because my parents are from East Africa, they'd come to this country and, you know, business and entrepreneurialism had been kind of in their genes and the other one was on India and how to kind of tackle the many challenges that India is facing and those two conversations collided when we started talking about our family foundation and um, I'm not sure how many people in this room, how much how much funding you get from family foundations, but often they can be so private that you don't even know that they exist. And that's kind of how we were in those days. We were giving checks to medium-sized organisations in Gujarat that were doing good work, but, you know, it's probably about 5% of my parents' time that they were spending on this, and they were giving a significant amount of money away. So um, after coming back from India and kind of telling them about how transformational my journey was, um... And, you know, the different communities that I'd met and this feeling of real shared humanity with the people there. Because I was born and brought up in the UK and previously when I'd been to India, I'd never really felt a connection with the country. But living and working there, I really did. And I could see how a mother, no matter where she is, no matter how much money she has or what location she is, still worries for her children in the same way. And, you know, a girl that feels... That She wants to make choices around her own body and her own education, feels it just as fiercely whether she's in London or whether she's in India. So it was this feeling of shared humanity and also the desire to use my family's wealth in a more strategic and meaningful way that led me to want to start running the foundation full time.
2: That's fantastic. And what has been the most challenging and interesting aspects of beginning your journey into philanthropy?
0: Um, a really lovely aspect has been how supportive the funders community is and again I don't know how it is for fundraisers but everybody it's really unique to this industry because within the private equity world I've seen a lot of industries and everybody's competing for you know the greatest profit the greatest market share but here it's quite unique because we have a common purpose or at least shared goals and so what I love about this sector is people from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation would come and talk to me when we would. You know, we weren't doing anything. And I've been really grateful for that support and that learning. And I'm acutely aware that at least our grassroots partners don't have that. Mm. And people always say, you should be collaborating, you should be working together. But the reality is that they're competing over an ever-shrinking pot of funds. So, you know, is it fair for us to be saying to them, you should be working together? And do we need to think a little bit more creatively around Mm. how we get those how we create those spaces for them to collaborate mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think what, what you're
3: speaking about is something that we work together with the Rise Together campaign as well, of trying mm-hmm. to work, help organisations to collaborate with each other outside of the kind of scarcity mindset they're kind of having to fight yeah. for resources. And it's been such a powerful um, project to work on. Um, so speaking of that, supporting women and girls is a kind of core part of um, your philanthropy. Um, in that area, how do you typically go about finding organisations to support? What's your process for that?
0: Well, um, firstly, our theory of change is based on the belief of the power and potential of frontline organisations. You know, they're on the ground. We're very aware that we're not at the coalface. And so as much as possible, we try to put our trust in them. But in terms of how to go about finding organisations, we generally use our network of kind of trusted advisors and partners to uh, refer us organisations that fit with what our criteria is Mm -hmm. do you ever respond to unsolicited requests for funding um (laughs) sadly no i won't say that (laughs) don't throw things at me um the reason is because early on we made the decision to stay kind of small and mighty and not build our own operations and our own team we want to invest in capacity like i say at the front line we don't see that by building a big organisation that's going to communicate about all sorts of things, is going to be more beneficial to the lives of the vulnerable communities mm. that we're trying to support. And so we just don't have the capacity to do it. But we do fund fundraisers in organisations or fund capacity building in organisations at the ground. So, um, yeah, it's not... It's, I know, I recognise it's not ideal. I wish that we could support all organisations. Like, we don't support startups because... Mm. They're so small that we don't have the capacity to communicate with them. They're not necessarily in an area where there's an internet connection in, you know, remote parts of India. So, yeah, that's the reality of it. It
3: sounds like um, capacity is obviously one of the main challenges when it comes to engaging with uh, lots of different causes and finding them. What would you say is the most challenging aspects of finding organisations that are right for you to support?
0: Um, you know, I once heard this compared to dating and I think that's actually right, is that finding an organisation is a bit like dating and online dating, I've been reliably informed, is um, a lot of, unfortunately I was like born in the generation before online dating was like a big thing, so I, I think it sounds like something would be so much fun to do, but that apparently it's just, um, my husband won't let me, um, it's a lot of um, exchanging of information back and forth. But there's nothing like going on an actual date. And you know, getting to know what motivates somebody, how they interact with the rest mm-hmm. of the world, how they interact with you. So the first step for us would be getting a referral from one of our kind of trusted partners. And that's a bit like being set up by a friend. You kind of trust their judgment a bit, and so you don't need to do too much due diligence up front. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we actually don't do much due diligence up front, but we fund the organization. Because what we've learned is that what we'll learn in the first year of funding is much more than we'll learn by asking them 100 questions. And actually, it's such a drain on them to have to answer all these questions and get everybody else up the learning curve. So we give a small, flexible grant in the first year and then we use that opportunity to get to know them. So it's like, again, back to my dating analogy, a bit like um, going on, like, you know, having a couple of coffees, having a dinner, you get to know them, but there's no huge commitment. Mm -hmm. Because we're also really aware that organizations can't be looking to get a year of funding that's not helpful but that we're not ready to enter into a long-term relationship at that stage Um, so we do the first year if all goes well then we enter into a longer term relationship Mm -hmm.
2: yeah I I think it's so interesting and, and your point around relationship building and how integral that is to any kind of fundraising process which has come through across all of our guests and and also the idea that fundraisers or funders have a bird's eye view, so you you know you have coffees or you go on dates with organizations, <laughs> yeah, uh, organization dates <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with organizations that have been referred to you by your trusted partners and your network, and how kind of cultivating those intermediaries and cultivating across your funder portfolio can be really beneficial in ways that you won't be able to anticipate because it can unlock so many more powerful networks. So it's it's really cool to hear a behind the scenes view into how you kind of approach that. A question for you now, so you're going on these dates, you've got the, you're the coffees, maybe you're, you're getting a drink now, you're, you're moving to the next stage, <laughs> <laughs> to continue the metaphor. Once you're at a point where, you know, perhaps an organization has submitted a proposal or you have a few options in front of you of organizations that you're really keen to work with, how do you go about decision making and what's the role of your family within that? Who, who is involved in that process for you?
0: So we're a business family and so we kind of use a combination of our entrepreneurial heritage and also our, ha- our family values. So mm-hmm. our entrepreneurial heritage will get us to look around things like the organisation, how is the leadership structured, what is the governance like, what is the strategy. Um, it, it's actually really similar to how we would look at businesses to invest in, is mm-hmm. do they kind of know where they're going and do they have a plan for it? With the massive caveat of we know how complex these um, problems are that like we don't have the answers so why, we don't expect them to have it all worked out and then also um, combining that with our value systems so you know when we think about equality um, is that being shown in their HR processes as well as their programs and that's a question that we more recently started to ask we'd never asked that question before we kind of assumed that that value is there but in some cases it isn't so Are you being discriminatory? And if you are, that's just not something that we believe in because we really do believe in that shared humanity. So we look at all those things, but it's not such an onerous process. Mm -hmm. And we speak a lot to our partners to ask them, what works well for you? Tell us. You know, this we've talked a lot, three of us Mm -hmm. this morning, about this power dynamic of does the partner feel like they can openly say to you, Oh, for goodness sake, you you know, why are you asking me this question? Or I've done something really similar for someone else. Can I just give you the same thing? And so Mm -hmm. we're trying to be much more proactive about asking those questions up front Mm -hmm. so that we can all just get on with the work that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's so great to hear you being so thoughtful
3: around that as well because it's not, not necessarily that widespread uh, in the philanthropy sector yet, but I think it's so important and I, I feel like you're the beginning of a trend in the way that you you and your family think about that. Um, so what would you say is the most common mistake that fundraisers make when they're engaging with you and your family?
0: So again, just um, we spend a lot of time saying to our partners, please don't feel like if you make a mistake, we're going to stop funding you. Mm-hmm. And they do feel like that, even though we say that. They feel like <laughs> if if we say look, we were planning on doing this and it didn't work, that we'll all of a sudden withdraw our funding. And that's why this whole idea of this strong relationship and this mutual trust and respect makes such a difference to how uh, sustainable that relationship is. But So I think it is that point on poor communication. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's poor communication, that's when you start to become misaligned and mm-hmm. you feel like, well, I thought that this is what we were doing. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell you because they're so worried of offending you and, and then and communication also helps to break that power dynamic down mm-hmm. and go, it's kind of
2: similar to the, the common mistakes can you go on the flip side of that and describe what would make your dream grantee the fundraiser or the organization if, if anything anything is possible <laughs> what are the qualities that make them really really stand out whether or not you've actually
0: encountered them in real life yeah That's a really interesting question and a really good question as well Um, it's actually something that we ask our partners about ourselves like what would make a dream funder because we know that again it's sometimes difficult to criticize and say we don't do this and you do do that Uh, and that's really helped to move us forward so Mm -hmm. from our perspective i think it would be a fundraiser that does the work to understand us as a family Mm -hmm. and how we fund because ultimately that's what guides our philanthropy Um, But I think they'd also be, if we're talking dream world here, they would be super smart, they'd be collaborative, they'd be authentic, they'd never be pretending to be something that they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I think that would make a really good relationship.
2: Yeah. And I love also what you said earlier about kind of taking your due diligence a a level deeper and looking at the the values and the systems and the management of the organisations as well and making sure that they align with the work that the organisation is trying to support and the values of your foundation and how that can play into a Dream Grantee because oftentimes, I mean, our sector does struggle with diversity. There's no question about that. And Mm -hmm. it's really powerful to have incentives to think more inclusively from donors as well because ultimately that's where a lot of change (coughs) can happen
0: more quickly. Yeah, I mean, we've started asking how many women have you got on your board? Mm Because they'll go, oh, we're 50-50 in the organisation. Like, yeah, but what about the people that are actually making the Mm -hmm. decisions? And if you're a BME-led organisation, how many BME-led, you know, what representation is there of the population, but also the communities that you're working with and how are they involved in decision-making? So we were, again, thinking earlier on about listening to people on the ground. Like, if you're going to be supporting, I, I know family foundations, and I'm sure we've been, uh, we 've done this in the past as well you 'll be, you'll be supporting the homeless, but you 're not talking to the homeless to ask them what do you want because you in your mind, have an idea of what you think would be the right thing, but unless you 're involving the people in the communities that you 're supporting, mm-hmm. then i don 't think that your philanthropy can be that um, effective mm-hmm. so it 's also about always thinking about how do you engage those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And have you found that it's easy to find that dream grantee or that those kinds of qualities come very quickly and naturally to the relationships you're building? Or have you found it a bit of a challenge to find excellent partnerships in that
0: way? So we've been thinking a lot about how to nurture those kind of organisations and Mm -hmm. how to give them the space to become organisations like that. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we do is support a leadership program that's run in conjunction with harvard business school but it happens in india and it takes those organization leaders and their leadership team on a training course that will help them to understand where a fund is coming from because i think that we have this assumption and it's helpful working in the private sector and also in the social sector because in the private sector you would never expect a ceo of a company to be a fantastic ceo and not train them in um hr practices not train them in any of the things that they're actually doing whereas we do expect that of our ngo leaders we expect them to just be so passionate about the course and then run their team really well and have their finances on track and we're not investing them in training them so we support a lot around training leaders and we've been thinking lately more so about how do you build the resilience of people in this sector because when we go out just on field trips can be really traumatizing mm-hmm. and upsetting to see that all of this money from philanthropists, governments, yet still we see such wretched inequality. We see people living in slavery. You know, I mean, how is it mm. after all of these years that still people are suffering in this way? It's horrific. Mm-hmm. Something is not working. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's an important element to consider: is what is the resilience of those leaders? And so again, we've moved to supporting around self-care and well-being of those leaders because we understand how traumatic a role it can be. I think resilience is such an important topic
3: and it's something that's been discussed in the fundraising community as well because in addition to some of the points you just raised, obviously fundraising is very frequently being told no <laughs> on, off the back of targets that you know are potentially life-saving amounts of money that you have to be responsible for. So it's, it's good to hear donors kind of supporting the idea of self-care in amongst everything else. So within your kind of focus areas, you have your focus on women and girls and you have your kind of initiatives. Um, has there ever been a time when an organisation is completely knocked out of the park in a way that's caused you to kind of fund outside of your typical scope or your typical way of engaging with a partner?
0: Um, yes, an organisation called Think Equal, which is a uh, charity that focuses on creating a systems change in education. And it was kind of coincidence that we met them because we supported an organisation um, A film a documentary called India's Daughter which was about the horrifying gang rape of a medical student on a bus in Delhi and uh, that film showed really clearly this kind of unique insight that the only way that we're going to change mindset is through education and not that traditional form of education that actually we're teaching our children you know and even in this country we're going well maths is really important English is really important and those things do have their place but we don't formally teach our children how to get along in the world. What do I do if I'm feeling so angry that I can't calm down? What do I do if I'm really upset? And people say, cheer up, but it's, mm. that's not enough. Or we're not equipping our children with the skills that they really need to learn to love and respect one another, but also themselves. And that's a lot around what Think Equal do. And so it was just this feeling of this real shared vision of kind of this Nelson Mandela quote of, you know, no child is born hating mm-hmm. uh, and a child that can be taught to hate can be taught to love because love comes more naturally to the human heart than the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think that just resonated with our family so much because that's a lot what we believe in, that love is a really powerful concept and it's, it feels kind of quite spiritual to talk about in you know philanthropy, we're talking about collaboration and impact and numbers. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings mm-hmm. Uh, And so I think, yeah, it was just this real shared vision with Think Equal and feeling like they could really create a change that we supported a startup.
2: Mm. That's very cool. And so going back into kind of the the donor journey, if you will. So you you spoke a lot earlier about some challenges that happen along the way when you're building relationships like um, perhaps organizations maybe being a bit nervous or anxious about communicating challenges and navigating that power dynamic, which is a very um, real consideration. A question on the other end of that. So once you have begun a partnership and in that kind of crucial first year, as you mentioned, being the kind of test case year, once a donation has been made, what are the common mistakes that you, that you experience and you see organisations making within that first year that turn you off from continuing into a longer term partnership with them?
0: Well, if it wasn't like kind of a misalignment in terms of values mm-hmm. or like an inability to show impact, any impact. And when I say impact, again, I say that with a big caveat because first of all, we kind of recognize that in order to collect impact costs a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. So with some of our, the organizations we support, we support a great um, human rights, legal rights charity in Mumbai called Mudjlis. And they train high court judges around gender sensitivities. And we can see that that's really impactful and it's a space that not a lot of other people are funding. But we also know that in order to track the actual impact of that work would cost probably three times what we're actually giving them. Mm. And it's not really worth doing that. So in terms of mistakes, um, I think it's down to lack of communication because we know stuff goes wrong. We know that they may have a plan for three years and they're never going to stick to that plan because we're going to get a new government or there's going to be a natural disaster. So it's unrealistic for us to expect it to be exactly as they planned, as long as they're resilient and they're visionary and they'll find another way around. So I really think it does come down to this communications and it's important for the partner to keep in touch with the people that they're supporting and ask them up front. I say to our um, partners, please don't send me stuff to read kind of every other week because I won't read it and I don't want to put that on you, but I would love to hear how you're doing. And this is the way I like to communicate as well. I really love it. I'm happy for you to WhatsApp me. Just WhatsApp me. I'm more likely to look at it than if you send me an email. I think those are just kind of conversations that are worth having at the get-go
3: we had a case study once actually of, a, of an organisation that was engaging with a, a group of philanthropists via WhatsApp in a, in a uh, humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. and it was incredibly successful as Islamic Relief actually you should uh, look it up they um, raised like 150,000 yeah. pounds in like a couple of days um, I think it was like
2: 24 hours yeah, yeah. it
3: was uh, just, just by engaging donors in, in, in the places that they were and kind of not do, doing yeah. it formally but kind yeah. of doing it in that kind of personal way it's also an yeah. Indian thing
0: I think oh, yeah. <laughs> when I email Indians they don't respond on email don't respond when you WhatsApp them like straight away they respond like ah this is obviously the way in yeah
2: but I think it's also interesting to have to kind of open the possibilities for what communication looks like because I think a lot of the times the sector is a bit stuck in the old ways of you know really really long annual reports that are a hundred pages in a PDF and you know very kind of technical and dense impact reporting which for some funders and perhaps for government and kind of larger bodies is appropriate but at the same time having frank conversations to actually kind of distill what's Actually needed, and to take it a bit offline, and to bring it back to that human level is mm-hmm. increasingly, um, you know, important, and uh, and able. To, you're able to do that in in the digital age. So it's.
3: I think we'll it's useful like also that. to have kind of less formal digital ways of communicating, right, because not everybody can take a coffee all the time or not everyone can come to an event and meet in person, so it's useful to have those kind of interpersonal, kind of friendlier ways of communicating that aren't just the 60-page the report or even just the, the formal kind of newsletter, email, whatever.
0: Hmm.
3: Okay, so what would you say is the one key thing that fundraisers should take away from this conversation today?
0: Hmm... <laughs> Well, um, what I was going to say, I'm I'm not going to say, but um, I I also um, advise the British Agent Trust. And one of the, I I think that we're a certain type of family, but not everybody else is like us. So I don't want to give advice to say this is how you should interact, because that would only be relevant for us. I think that it would be important to segment your donors as to what kind of what are their behaviours, in the same way that you would do a customer segmentation, and you would say how can I, when you look at when you're selling a product, you know, how can I delight and exceed the expectations of this customer? And so I bucket all the people that were funding me into different categories, and then think about not just how can I engage with them, but then how can I engage with their network? Mm -hmm. So the most powerful thing that I think that we do for our partners is actually not just the money we give them it's all the other stuff because we know that they don't have access to some of the network that we have access to in the same way we don't have access to their network so connecting them to say corporates to banks has been really powerful so i would say take the time if you can to think about who are you know who's supporting the organization and then think about what their behaviors are so it would be like how do you how can you Can you communicate to them? What is success for them? So when I report to my parents, they're totally opposite. My dad wants to see all the numbers, and he will only be happy if I explain to him this is exactly where the money went, and these are the dotted I's and the cross T's. And my mum is all about heart, so if you give her a report, she won't read it. But if you show her videos and tell her stories, she can really engage. And so I I think it would be thinking about that deeper human connection.
2: Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. We we've heard that a lot actually from mm-hmm. from our podcast guests. So mm-hmm. I think while of course every funder is different and you know the advice for specifically cultivating you might differ slightly to other donors, there's a lot of threads of commonality with what you've said with that resonate with our other guests. So we've got ten minutes left, and we are now going to open it up to all of you for a and A. Um, so we've got two or one or two floating mics, I believe, at the back with the volunteers, and if you could say your name and the organization that you're from and ask your question, that would be awesome. You will be on the podcast again, so full disclosure, if anyone has any questions for Sonal.
0: It's the race of the microphones. Who's going to make it first, Team Yellow or Team Red?
4: (laughs) Hi, thanks very much. Um, My name's Emily. I work for the Global Fund for Forgotten People, and we're a high-net-worth philanthropy vehicle um, working around the world. And I was really interested by... um, what you were saying, a lot of what you were saying, thanks very much. Um, and I wondered if you had any advice on a specific question, which is, I'm increasingly trying to remind myself when I'm working with Aldonians that it's, we think it's all about us as fundraisers. We're so focused on where we can take the journey with you and you know, what you know, the next stage of it, etc. That You forget that we're just a bit of a lot of people's lives and actually we sometimes think oh it's all about because I said this or because I did it that way and actually it's a lot about what's going on in the individual's life as well and I think that we sometimes have so many things and you know ways in which we can provide that sort of delight and experience you were talking about but it's about time you know time is so precious especially um, for a lot of you know for a lot of our our donors and um, yes we use WhatsApp increasingly and how do you you have any advice on when about how how much is too much in the sense of in terms of informal contacts we try not to overdo it at the same time, if you can't get responses from people, and then they get, oh, yes, I've been meaning to get back to you, thanks. You know, and you're like, oh, maybe it was okay to WhatsApp you eight times in the last five days <laughs> um, because I can see your Reddit. Um, so I don't know if you...
0: <laughs> having... See, it is really similar to dating because it's like you're sort of stalking <laughs> yeah. that person, but you don't know how much is too much to stalk them and how much they might like it. It's really hard to give um, an answer to that because it is a case of the individual, but... I mean, I had an opposite perspective this morning, which was where a lady said that it shouldn't be so much about the personal connection. It should be more structured because it's not fair. But I think yeah, I think it depends on the individual. I think you just have to judge it. Like you say. I mean, you sound like such a thoughtful person that you recognize that there's lots of other things going on, but I mean, I am um, running a group of f- female philanthropists that get together once every kind of couple of months um, to talk about. Kind of what's happening in the space, what we're doing, how we can collaborate, and even in that group, I can see how different we are. So, I really don't like to go to black tie events. I've got young children, and I just don't want to be sitting at a table, you know, with other people who are the same as me. I would much rather spend my time going to the ground and seeing what's going on. But one of my colleagues, she loves to go to those sorts of things, and she's really energized by that. So it really depends on who you're dealing with but I would say don't be afraid to ask the question um one of our partners asks us the most challenging questions it really makes me think before I respond um none of this straight off the bat communication uh and it's it's moved us on a lot in the way that we do things Like I've really been wondering how I can engage you oh, well, I'd really love to come and see your work. And I, I took my children, actually, around India to visit all of the different org- some of the different organisations we fund because some are not appropriate. And I loved it that people asked me that question. But I'm quite forthright. I'll just ask myself, but maybe others won't.
2: Awesome. All right, next question.
1: I, <clears throat> hi, sorry. I'm Debbie from CAFOD, and we work in the international aid sector. Um, I just want to say... As fundraisers we all know that we are under a lot of pressure to hit targets and I just wanted to ask do you think the pressure that fundraisers are under to hit targets in a certain financial year can hemorrhage their ability to build relationships with their donors and funders because relationship building does take time and you know you may not get a meeting with a donor for for 9 months or even a year and then that can kickstart your Relationship where you get to know a bit more about them, but then you haven't brought in any money from that donor in the last financial year. So, Mm. are we working in a way that literally stops us being the most effective fundraisers we could be?
3: So, I'll take that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, is is the short answer, and this is something we speak about a lot with our clients and in some of the trainings that we do, um, especially when we're speaking to kind of senior fundraisers and and, and directors. Mm Um, because we believe that um, whilst, of course, pounds through the door is an essential part of enabling our organisations to do work, that when it comes to donor relationships, really it is quality time and quality engagement. So sometimes that does mean coffee, sometimes it means dates, uh, WhatsApps, whatever it means, Um, and not everybody moves at the pace of of an average financial year. So we always encourage, um, especially when it comes to major donor fundraisers, um, focusing on uh, measuring quality time rather than measuring pounds through the door, because ultimately, that the measurement of that quality time, whatever that means for the individual that you that you're engaging with, um, that's more likely to lead to a more sustainable relationship. It's more likely to lead to the type of open communication and kind of direct asking of, of what is it that you want from me? How can I better engage with you? Um, and I think that the amount of pressure um, that is created by the, the scarcity of funding essentially um, really sometimes can hamper the, the sector as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that it's the privilege of philanthropists to take those risks. And if you have some open-minded funders, maybe you could have that conversation with them. So within the violence against women's sector and the BAME communities in the UK, this was something that we saw more and more is just that everybody's being squeezed, but they're being squeezed the hardest. And so we had been looking around, is there anything that we can do? And jointly with IG Advisors, we supported a crowdfunding campaign if we fund the campaign is it going to allow the fundraiser to raise funds from a whole different community like we're fishing in an ever-shrinking pot but what if there was another pot that we could start fishing in so I think it is huge amount of pressure And my heart goes out to the frontline organizations that are just facing it day in and day out like how can we try and problem solve this together like guys we don't know what would, how to support these vulnerable communities have you guys got any idea maybe we could be helpful
2: <laughs> All right, we have time for one more question, so yeah, we can go to you and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Just a few minutes. Um, hi, I'm Sheila from Crisis,
4: the National Charity for, Hom- for Homeless People, um, and my question is, I think the late- latest stats is that the average age of a philanthropist is 55 and over, um, so I was wondering if you have any, any advice or any, um, anything that you've seen that works to really engage younger people to be philanthropists?
0: Um, So I think a lot of that generation is wondering how are they going to engage their children and so again what I've been advising the British Asian Trust to do is to talk to that generation because they are interested in what are we going to do with our next gen so how can you bring them into this idea of philanthropy Um, I've got a twin sister and a brother and neither of them are involved in our foundation Um, so I guess it's around the individual, but I'm seeing a lot more younger people getting involved than historically. But I'd say if you've got contact with a 55-year-old, ask them, how are your children involved? Have you thought about engaging them? And can we support you in thinking through that? Because, again, when we think about the personal connection, I think for a family foundation, it is all about family. And that's maybe the way in.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, we are bang on time. Thank you so much for all your questions, and a huge thank you to Sonal for being for our fabulous me. guest today. It's such a pleasure to have you here, and uh, yes. we hope you enjoy the rest of the convention. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want and a huge thank you to Sonal for her generous time and advice and also to the Institute of Fundraising team for having us. As always, we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hey on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors or come find us in London. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.